Broadcasting from the historic Hayburn Building in downtown Louisville, it's time for Single Payer Radio, a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We're an affiliate of the Kentucky chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program, and we're a long-standing partner, community partner, with Forward Radio, WFMP LP 106.5. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the group. The views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the speakers and not the station. This week we're playing the first part of an important webinar. It's called Direct Contracting Entities, Handing Traditional Medicare to Wall Street. It took place September 23rd and was co-hosted by Physicians for a National Health Program and National Single Payer and co-sponsored by Public Citizen, Social Security Works, All Unions Committee for Single Payer, UAW Region 1 Retirees, Kentucky State AFL-CIO, Kentucky Alliance for Retired Americans, and Western Pennsylvania Coalition for Single-Payer Health Care. Dr. Susan Rogers, President, for a national, President of Physicians for a National Health Program, moderates. And U.S. Representative Katie Porter, yes, Representative Porter with a whiteboard, she's part of the panel that we will be talking about something that a lot of people are interested in. I am Dr. Susan Rogers. I am president of Physicians for National Health Program, uh, which advocates for single-payer Medicare for All, and I'd like to welcome you to our uh, webinar tonight on DCEs. Um, I want to thank PNHP and National Single Payer for hosting this, and especially our organizing committee, Dr. Anna Manilow, Dr. Kay Tillo, Dr. Claire Cohen, and Dr. Judy Albert, who have done a phenomenal amount of work getting this together. Now, as you'll hear, a Trump-era proposal that could hand Medicare completely over to corporate risk uh, interests in Wall Street is on the horizon. And this move to further privatize Medicare makes our goal of Medicare for all even more urgent. So we really need to stay on top of this so that we can continue to uh, get the care that we all will need. My, our first speaker will be Dr. Ed Weisbart, who will present an overview of the direct contract entities, and he will speak with a PowerPoint. And just uh, to introduce Dr. Weisbart, he is a national board member of Physicians for National Health Program, and he chairs the Missouri chapter. After practicing family medicine for over 20 years at Rush Medical Center in Chicago, he moved to St. Louis in 2003 to serve as chief medical officer of Express Scripts until retiring in 2010. Thank you, Dr. Weisbart, for joining us tonight. And go ahead with your presentation here. Well, thank you, Dr. Rogers. Um, so here we go again, right? We're here tonight because of a new scheme uh, to privatize Medicare, to transform it from a public good into 
just another channel for corporate profits, where a dollar spent on healthcare is a dollar diverted away from the bottom line of Wall Street investors and others. I admit right now that direct contracting story is complicated, and that's frankly one of the differences between DCE and Medicare for All. Remember, nobody is asking us to make healthcare more complicated unless they want to hide something in the complexity. So, so I think the story actually starts, frankly, before direct contracting. It starts, we've been in a generational struggle. Um, sorry, there we go. We've been in a, frankly, a generational struggle between viewing healthcare as a public good and viewing it as a, a corporate investment opportunity. Direct contracting is the newest attack on Medicare, but we should start tonight's story with Medicare Advantage. Until direct contracting uh, came up, Medicare Advantage has frankly been the most obvious and successful uh, push to, to end traditional Medicare and privatize it. So just to unpack Medicare Advantage for just a moment. Uh, here's traditional Medicare, right? We pay our taxes and we get, um, and, and the federal government then gives us Medicare and, and Medicare negotiates directly essentially with the physicians and hospitals. And that's traditional Medicare with maybe some Medicare managed um, administrators. Medicare Advantage is quite different from that. Medicare Advantage is introducing, a, introduces a risk bearing intermediary between uh, Medicare and physicians. So it's the Medicare Advantage folks who get essentially their, their funds directly from Medicare and then they contract with, with uh, physicians and hospitals. So we've frankly had most of our advocacy eyes on Medicare Advantage because of our concerns. And we've seen Medicare Advantage growing over the last few years. And we've not been as focused on this new attack on traditional Medicare, but traditional Medicare is frankly larger than Medicare Advantage has ever been. So that's sort of the thrust of, of uh, the direct contracting entities. It's to create new risk-bearing intermediaries in between Medicare and physicians and hospitals. And that creates conflicts of interest that we're gonna point out to you. Direct contracting is a concept that was begun under the Trump administration, and it's even now still in the pilot project phase within Medicare. So if we did want to intervene, it's important to do it quickly while it's a pilot. It's a pilot project introduced by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. This is a center created under Section 3021 of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, to, to, to overcome what was recognized as a problem of anti-reform inertia. Um, so the Affordable Care Act created the Centers for Medicare Innovation and gave it the ability to uh, do a pilot project that they can then widely apply across Medicare if Health and Human Services believes that their pilot project is favorable. In other words, it reduces spending without decreasing cost or quality, or it improves quality without increasing spending one of those two things, while not denying or limiting coverage or provision of benefits. So that's the charter of the Center for Medicare uh, Innovation. The key point here is that if, the, if HHS believes that one of their pilot projects is, meets these criteria, it can roll the project out across Medicare without going back to Congress for additional uh, approval. They have that approval. And some of their innovations are frankly better uh, and some are some, than some others. So tonight we're talking about direct contracting, and this comes in a few flavors, a few different models. I'm just going to focus a bit on two of these, the most dominant ones, I think. The first is the one that's gotten a lot of attention, which is called the geographic 
direct contracting model, um, and it's or, or the geo model. Um, this would take all traditional members, Medicare members, in a specific region, a metropolitan service area or whatever, and align them to that regions. Everybody in there would be you know, aligned, is what they call it, uh, to that region's direct contracting entity. This particular program, which is the one that I think most people are familiar with, is actually on pause by the Medicare Innovation Center, and, and it's not moving forward. There's no indication at the moment that it's going to be moving forward. There's no word about that. Um, but the reason it's worth bearing in mind is because it's an example of an ability of the Medicare Innovation Center to literally move or, or align everybody from traditional Medicare into one of these corporate-focused uh, entities. Not active today, no word that it's about to become active, but it could be reactivated really at any time or something like that. But that's not on the table today, and hopefully, frankly, hopefully it wouldn't be. What is more active today is what's called the Global and Professional Direct Contracting uh, Model, or the GPDC, or GLOPRO, uh, in case we haven't had enough acronyms lately. So um, in this model, um, your medical claims data as a patient in traditional Medicare would be used to identify who the system believes to be your primary care physician, and then automatically align you automatically without asking you into that primary care physician's direct contracting entity. It, this program is not on pause today. There are 53 pilots going on. And then in addition to being auto-aligned, if you wanted to, you could voluntarily uh, sign up for your primary care physician's uh, direct contracting entity. So these things, these DCEs have two main revenue streams, either capitation or financial risk. Uh, we'll unpack them both for a moment. Capitation uh, can be either limited to just having the DCE capitated for primary care or to be, or actually bear a capitation for everything uh, in your healthcare dollar. So primary care or total care. Uh, and then the DCE pays for the healthcare from their capitation dollars pays for the care that's within the DCE's network, only within the DCE's network via the DCE's own contracts. However, Medicare patients are completely at freedom, despite being in a DCE, are at complete freedom, this kind of DCE, are at complete freedom to go outside of that DCE. And if they do, then there's somewhere the DCA doesn't have a contract with. And so Medicare directly pays for that care. And then in some process, reconciles that expense back with uh, the direct contracting entity. So capitation is one piece of revenue for the DCEs. The second piece is financial risk and how will they manage it. So the DCE uh, can bear risk for the costs that are either greater or less than the benchmark for their population that's been set by Medicare. And this comes in two forms. They can do the global risk, which is bearing 100% risk by the DCE, or just the professional risk which is bearing only half of the risk uh, with, DIA, with with Medicare. So if they if they are less expensive than the benchmark, they can keep either 100 or 50 percent of that savings. And if they're more expensive, they bear either 150 or 100 or 50 percent of the overage. So the words global or professional refer to how much of the risk they share, not what they're responsible not what they're responsible for. Both global and professional models are responsible for essentially all the services that we think of today as being part of Medicare's Part A and B. So a little funny bit of naming there. So DCEs, in my mind, are going to be under significant pressure to upcode, to get larger capitations. This means that the DCE uh, will start by engaging primary care physicians, putting them into their networks. And then once they've done that, then, the DC, then, the, then Medicare capitates uh, the direct contract entity for the patients 
that are within that primary care physician's uh, practice, either in whatever way they chose to, as I mentioned. And then the DCE is under pressure, frankly, to maximize that capitation by this system called upcoding. That's, this is my assessment of that. Now, we don't have any information on whether or not DCEs are upcoding much at this point because they're too new. So I can't unpack upcoding as a thing that's being done by DCEs today, but the exact same pressures to upcode are, are long established within Medicare Advantage for, so Medicare Advantage plans can get higher payments. So let me explain how up, what upcoding is, is and how that works. It's all based on coding the, the things the physician enters when we see the patient and submit a bill, we put in diagnostic codes. We say the person has hypertension or diabetes or whatever. We put in diagnosis codes, and then these codes drive a risk score that's calculated by Medicare. And the risk score is then used to determine Medicare Advantage reimbursements and eventually DCE type reimbursements. So let me unpack this for you. Here's the way the risk score would be calculated for a, a healthy, find one of those, a healthy 70, I know some, a healthy 76 year old woman and the and the, uh, the hierarchical condition categories or the HCC is essentially the risk codes. So this woman would have no extra codes and her risk score would be 0.45 and Medicare would pay the Medicare Advantage plan, plan in 2019 when this was developed, um, $4,000 per year to take care of her. Now, if that person is sicker, it's appropriate for the Medicare Advantage plan to be paid more for a sicker person, you could say. And so here's somebody, same person, but adding in some diagnoses. Um, and if you put together those diagnostic codes, the risk score goes up to 1.03, and then the plan gets significantly more. So a plan that ignored uh, adequate coding would be losing a lot of money. So that's sort of straightforward risk coding. But there's a big opportunity to maximize the coding and to get these codes they, there's a whole industry around doing this. So for example, if I were to see somebody and code them as having uh, obesity, that's worth nothing to the Medicare Advantage plan. But if I code them as having morbid obesity, that's worth a significant bump up in their risk coding. At the end of the day, these comparable codes more than triple what, the, what Medicare would be paying that Medicare Advantage plan. So there's an industry around getting these codes so that the Medicare Advantage plan, and I propose probably the DCEs, would be able to do the same kind of game. And Medicare Advantage has gotten really good at this. So they've been able to upcode dramatically since uh, since they started looking closely at it. And those changes have nothing to do with change in real risk. Um, um, so um, it's, it's a big opportunity. And in fact, it's in the order of hundreds of billions of dollars for this seven year period. The same kind of strategy wouldn't have the same kind of impact under DCEs, but still a substantial impact. The rules are a bit different, so they probably wouldn't have quite the same dollar amount, but still significant. And these are the kinds of numbers that get attention on Wall Street, which is where most DCEs are owned. So fewer than half of DCEs are owned by provider groups, um, like ACOs and physician groups and such, but most are frankly owned by investors, uh, either publicly traded or publicly backed. Um, and only a handful are owned by insurance companies um, at this point. There's 53, six are owned by insurance companies, but those six are far and away the largest of, of, of this group. So the problem that I see with, with the direct contracting model is that it is, a, it, it is a huge step forward, could potentially complete the full privatization of our public precious good called Medicare. It violates uh, the spirit of a public health program, like which Medicare is. 
by driving larger corporate profits as a priority over improving our health, which Medicare is remarkably successful at. Uh, it corrodes the value, frankly, of a public health plan by creating these opportunities for profiteering. And if we want to rally behind Medicare for all, <laughs> let DCE take over Medicare, the traditional Medicare, and I'm not sure what it is that we would be rallying behind. So it's a big threat to our, to our movement. And how do I stop screen share? Okay, those are mine. Thank you so much for that uh, wonderful explanation, Dr. Weisbart. Um, it's true, this is a big threat to uh, our goal of trying to get uh, health care for everyone under a Medicare for All program. Um, I do know that Representative Porter has joined us. Uh, I do want to make a couple of notes, and Dr. Weisbart, I will ask you some questions later, but I know Representative Porter has to leave rather quickly before the end of our webinar, so I don't want to take too much time before she gets to speak. But I do want to say that we, our other speakers, Trudy Lieberman, um, who is a contributing editor to the Columbia Journalism Review, David Lipschultz, who is the Associate Director for Center for Medicare Advocacy, and Dr. Rachel Madley, who is a staff member in uh, Congressman Jayapal's office, will be speakers uh, later on. I do encourage participants to post questions in the Q&A, and we will try to get as many get to as many as we can later. Uh, we do have some questions already uh, gotten together to ask some of the speakers. I do want uh, participants to take a look at the chat, watch the chat. There will be announcements and links put in the chat um, that you will find useful. Um, or, you know, to link to later on after the program. I would now like to welcome uh, Porter uh, to our webinar. And I think many of us are very, very familiar with her and her whiteboard. I, I wish she had her, hope she has her whiteboard with her, but I don't know. Um, but she represents the 45th Congressional District in Orange County, California. And before coming to Congress, she spent years as a consumer advocate and taught, bankrupt and taught bankruptcy law at UOC, UC Irvine School of Law in California. Wielding her infamous whiteboard, she has become a champion for the people, and we are honored to have her as one of the panelists this evening. So, Representative Porter, the floor is yours. Oh, yes, this is why I didn't want to, I need the lights off, the bright lights. I'm so sorry, but I am about to get on, Bernard, I need you to turn these off. I'm delighted to be with you all tonight to talk about why Medicare is so important. Specifically, we are here to talk about direct contacting contracting entities, DCEs, and why they are such a threat to the Medicare program. Now, this might seem like a super wonky topic, but at the end of the day, we are talking about people's lives and the quality of the health care that they get. So I'm gonna dig in a little bit to the details and highlight some of the other related initiatives that I'm working on to not just protect Medicare, but to improve Medicare. Last year, as you may all know, the Trump administration created a new pilot program in Medicare that relies on direct contracting entities, DCEs, to deliver care to beneficiaries. And this program was supposed to make Medicare more efficient but actually it does just the opposite. 
Rather than allowing patients to go to providers directly under traditional Medicare, DCEs invite insurers and investors to step in and interfere with the care that Americans get. By adding in these intermediaries, the Trump administration undermined the very purpose of Medicare, which is to provide quality health coverage and increased financial security for seniors. Here's the thing. We know that traditional Medicare works. Since it was established in 1965, Medicare has been enormously successful at improving millions of older Americans' quality of life. Medicare serves approximately one in six Americans and virtually all of the 65 plus population. So given Medicare's incredible success, you might be wondering, why would anyone want to overhaul this program? And the answer, as with too many things in Washington, is the greed of corporate special interests. This direct contracting entity model is just one more example of the Trump administration's many attempts to wreck a functioning, successful, popular government program for the sake of lining the pockets of its corporate donors. In effect, former President Trump tried to sell Medicare off to the highest bidder. The bottom line for direct contracting entities is not to improve the quality of care. They drive up costs for patients to maximize their profits. And this isn't hypothetical. We know exactly what happens when insurers dip their hands into Medicare, because we've already seen that play out in Medicare Advantage. As you all know, unlike traditional Medicare, Medicare Advantage allows insurers to manage healthcare plans. The result is that Medicare Advantage costs taxpayers more money than traditional Medicare, and it provides less information for agencies, and more importantly, the American people, to determine whether the program is working. When an independent government watchdog investigated Medicare Advantage, it uncovered widespread denials of care. I want to repeat, Medicare Advantage costs more money. I wish I did have my whiteboard. Medicare Advantage costs more money, is less transparent, and provides worse care. We should not open the door to more corporate abuse of Medicare. And this direct contracting entity model piloted by the Trump administration risks even more patients being denied the care they need and leaving taxpayers with a higher bill. It is no surprise that Wall Street investors hope to see more direct contracting entities in our healthcare system. Because for them, direct contracting entities are a fantastic opportunity to rake in cash by investing early so they can eventually get bought out by insurers. Wall Street wins, patients and taxpayers lose. Not only is it wrong to let Wall Street abuse Medicare, it's wrong for Medicare beneficiaries to be auto-assigned into direct contracting entities without their knowledge and without their consent. Part of what makes investing in DCE so lucrative is that they don't have to to spend a dime on marketing, unlike Medicare Advantage, which is paying Joe Namath to peddle it on TV commercials. Instead, these direct contracting entities just bamboozle Americans directly into their for-profit scheme for Medicare. Now, throughout his time in the White House, President Trump talked a lot about the wonders of capitalism, 
Well, I am a proud capitalist and a former business law professor, and I can tell you that two of the foundational building blocks of capitalism are consumer choice and information. And without those fundamental principles, we don't have healthy markets, and consumers are more likely to get cheated. Direct contracting entities are, in fact, anti-capitalist. And that is part of the reason that back in May, I joined three of my House colleagues in a letter to HHS Secretary Becerra and the Acting Administrator of CMS, urging them to immediately freeze the DCE pilot program launched under the Trump administration. I am gonna to continue to stand up against misguided plans that would decrease Medicare's quality and cost taxpayers more. Part of the reason that we elected President Biden is his commitment to protecting access to healthcare and to lowering its costs. Medicare is incredibly popular and the Biden administration should do everything in its power to dismantle DCEs. Medicare has broad bipartisan support among the American people. And I know this because I read it, represent a district that is about evenly split between Democrats and Republicans. The 45th Congressional District in California also is home to the second largest retirement community in the country. And I hear from constituents on Medicare, Democrats, Republicans, and independents alike, that they like Medicare. And I hear from people who are not yet eligible that they want the program to be there for them when they become eligible. Medicare is popular because Medicare works. And of course there are places where it falls short, but part of being a champion for Medicare is working to build on the program's successes. We can and should improve and expand Medicare so that it's strong for generations to come. If the proponents of the Trump administration's DCE pilot are serious about strengthening Medicare, rather than dismantling it and auctioning off the pieces, I have some ideas for how they could help. House Democrats are working on passing HR3, the Elijah Cummings Lower Drug Costs Now Act, a sweeping package that would allow Medicare to negotiate better drug prices, bring down costs for Americans on Medicare, and for those getting their prescriptions on the commercial market. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office estimated this would save taxpayers nearly half a trillion dollars and bring down the cost of drugs by 50 to 75%. I'm proud that my bill, the Freedom from Price Gouging Act, was included in HR3. And this legislation is pretty simple. It says to drug companies, if you price gouge, if you hike your prices way beyond inflation, you need to give that money back to the taxpayers who are footing the bill through Medicare. Big pharma and Wall Street investors should not be able to profit from unreasonable price hikes. And if they do, we need to hold them accountable. I am urging congressional leaders to lower the age of Medicare 60. By lowering that age, we could expand quality care to an additional 23 million older Americans. And the data is clear. This expansion means the difference between life and death for those who would be covered. Cancer diagnoses jump when patients turn 65 because they finally have access to screenings under Medicare. So despite the general convention that younger patients are more likely to have better outcomes, a recent medical study found that there is an increased chance of receiving and surviving a cancer diagnosis in patients ages 65 to 69. 
compared to ages 60 to 64. Why? Because those older patients have Medicaid. I am also working to end the 10% penalty that seniors are subject to for each year they delay in enrolling Medicare. To fix this, I introduced the Medicare Economic Security Solutions Act, which would cap these unfair late Medicare enrollment penalties and limit how long the penalty could be applied for. Allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices, lowering the eligibility age, and doing away with unfair penalties, these are ways we can strengthen Medicare while keeping the core of what makes the program work. And in Congress, I'm gonna keep pushing for policies that will make healthcare cheaper, easier to get, and more secure. You guys know me, I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. Corporate special interests are powerful in Washington. Because of their lobbying, the House Energy and Commerce Committee failed to include Medicare drug price negotiation in its portion of the Build Back Better Act. But I do not take corporate PAC money, so I cannot be bought. I am not afraid to take corporate special interests on, especially with all of you on my side. Together, we are going to forge a healthcare system that puts patients first. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here tonight and to speak with you. I am so incredibly grateful for all of the groups that organized this event, and I'm honored to be your partner in Congress. I apologize that I cannot take any questions, but I have to go get on CNN in the next six minutes. So look for me on Chris Cuomo, and thank you so much for having me keep up the fight. Thank you so much, Representative for, uh Porter, I, you know, I appreciate your comments, your enthusiasm, and we need more people like you, more representatives like you with your energy and enthusiasm to fight for what is fair and equitable for everyone in this country. So th I really appreciate you making time to join us on this webinar. Thank you so much. Okay. Good night. <laughs> okay. We don't have time um, to ask uh, the representative any questions, but I hope that everyone was can get energized from her energy and enthusiasm and, and her remarks. We will go on with our program and our next speaker will be Trudy Lieberman, who is, the, who is a contributing editor of the Columbia Journalism Review and also a contributor to Health News Review and the Center for Health Journalism. Trudy, are you on? There you are. Okay. There you are. Welcome. Well, thank you. And I appreciate the uh, uh, invitation to speak about a program that I have been covering since about 1988 when I worked at Consumer Reports. Um, and we did many of the pioneering um, work on looking at Medicare um, products, looking at how Medicare uh, was being sold to people in California, especially. So it's a program I know very, very well. And I'm very pleased to be able to talk to you tonight and impart some of the things that I've learned and some of the things that I continue to learn and have learned just in the last couple of days. Um, I've, I've covered this program really over the time period that Newt Gingrich said back in the mid-90s that he had hoped that his goal was to 
have Medicare wither on the vine. So I've always kept that in mind as I've covered this program, because everything the government seems to have done since about 1994 is to destroy what is a perfectly good social insurance program. And I use the word social insurance because we know that that's what Part A certainly is. And I think most of the people who are on Medicare do not really understand that that is exactly what it is. They just know that they need it, they like it, and it works very well for them. So um, I think that for uh, the purposes of this talk, um, I'm going to talk about two letters that I got in the last couple of days from people in Indiana. I'm continuing to write a rural health column for the state of Indiana. It seems like the people in this very conservative state are really very interested in knowing what really is going on. And my columns out there have been extremely well read over the last eight, nine years, and it's very popular. So we decided to continue the column in Indiana this year. And so two letters came in just in the last couple days. One was from a doctor who read the last column that I produced a couple of days ago, which was the backstory of Medicare Advantage plans. That's probably going to be the first of several I'll do during this open enrollment season. Anyway, the doctor was a, uh, a nose throat specialist, and he was complaining mightily about the pre-authorizations that he had to get under these MA plans for his patients. And he said they often couldn't get the pre-authorizations that were needed for these patients that had severe sinus problems because the health plans didn't think these treatments were necessary. So these people didn't have any access to the care that they would have gotten had they been in traditional Medicare. Now, Indiana is a big state for Medicare Advantage plans, and it always has been. The insurance industry has found it a very profitable state to uh, mine the uh, people for their plans, and that's essentially what they've done. So the doctor was very, very upset about all these pre-authorizations and could hardly wait to talk to me more about what he could do about any of this. The second letter I got was from a woman who worked in a cancer clinic in, in Indiana. And she said, I want to tell you about the sticker shock my, para, my patients have um, experienced when they find out that they're under chemotherapy and that the 20% that Medicare requires them to pay for this is has to be charged to the allowable charge under these out-of-pocket costs that they have to pay under a Medicare Advantage plan. So in other words, they have a high out-of-pocket cost that they never thought that they were going to have because they did not understand how a Medicare Advantage plan worked. And the woman who wrote to me said that these cases were extremely sad. And the, another time she told me about a woman from Arizona had, had moved to Indiana and she thought that she was going to transfer her care under a Medicare Advantage plan she bought in Arizona to Indiana. Well, of course, she couldn't do that because these are all network-based, and her doctors in Arizona were not in any network in Indiana. So this woman was really out of luck. She really had very few options. 
And of course, she could have gone back to traditional Medicare, which is always an option for people. But I think most of the people who have that option are unaware of something that is very limiting if they choose that option. That they are not, except in four states, they are unable to buy a Medicare supplement policy without medical underwriting. And this is a very little known provision that I'm always trying to get reporters to write about and they have to go over and over and over it with me because they don't understand it. They don't understand how Medicare works and they don't understand what this provision means to people. They don't understand underwriting. So I have to explain all these basics to them. So if it's hard for journalists to understand this, just think about a Medicare Advantage uh, patient who wants to go back to traditional and is barred from getting a Medicare supplement because they happen to live in the wrong state. Only four states, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Maine, allow people to go back and get a Medicare supplement without medical underwriting, which means that they can get a policy regardless of what their health conditions are. In other states like Indiana and Arizona and all of the rest, they cannot do that. So they have to be very determined or very sick to leave a Medicare Advantage plan. Well, are they doing that? There's new research that came out this spring that I want to share with you because I think it's worth thinking about and looking at as you think about these plans going forward and what the shortcomings are. There was a study that was published in March in Health Affairs. And the study talked about who wanted to leave Medicare Advantage plans because they were not getting proper care. And it turns out that people in rural communities were really getting the short end of the stick with these plans. And that's not surprising because these are all limited networks. And in rural areas, there are not a lot of doctors. There's not a lot of networks. And there's not a lot of places for people to go. So if a certain doctor or clinic or maybe even a hospital is not part of a network, someone living in rural Kansas or rural Nebraska or Iowa is not going to be able to get much care. And of course, that is not really explained to people in these areas until they get sick and they want to get care and they find their options are rather limited. So what the um, researchers from Brown found, and I find this very instructive. I, this just kind of blew me away and it made a really good post on the uh, California site that I write for now. That 20% of the beneficiaries in the rural areas were not satisfied with their Medicare Advantage plans uh, because they could not get doctors and they could not get care at the same location, which meant they had to drive around their counties, these rural counties, where things are separated far apart in order to get the care they needed. So this is becoming a problem. And so they went back to traditional and they were even in these states where they could not get a Medicare supplement. So they were willing to take the risk of not having the, the benefit of having the supplement pay what Medicare didn't pay just to get out of the Medicare Advantage plans. And I think that that is a statistic that is worth keeping in mind.
These same researchers have also done work on how black people and how Hispanic people fare in Medicare Advantage plans. And they don't fare too well either. And that kind of goes contrary to the advertising that we're going to see with Danny Glover and uh, Namath if he's around this year, because the advertising is seems to be geared toward people of color. And what they are trying to do is to present low-cost Medicare Advantage plans that are attractive to this population and get people hooked on these plans. But what the same researchers at Brown found was that these people were gravitating to lower quality plans because the lower quality plans had lower out-of-pocket costs. And that's what many of these people were able to afford. So they tended to sign up for these lower premium plans uh, and with the narrow networks and just took the care that they were going to get. And so we really don't know a whole lot about the care that people in these circumstances are getting, but we do know that they are barred from getting a Medicare supplement. And I would guess, knowing that the literacy about Medicare supplement policies is so low, that many of these people probably didn't even know they had that option. And I have seen many, many sales pitches over the years to all kinds of people. And I can tell you that all of these ins and outs of how this works is never very well explained to them. And as I sit there as sort of an observer, I just, I have to keep my mouth closed because I really can't talk and raise too many questions, but it is very frustrating to see how this really happens in real life. Rudy, so, I, I hate to interrupt you, but I do want to, to move on just to, so I can ask you a couple of questions okay. before your time is up. And I'm wondering too, if you can turn your video on so that people could see you. Oh, it was on, okay. It was for a few seconds in the beginning, but then there you are. Okay, is it on now? It's on now, great, okay. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, what is your reaction to all this massive marketing campaign that's going on? I see it on TV, on print ads and other media, uh, even with popular actors like Danny Glover, uh, specifically targeting black Medicare com consumers. Yeah, I mean, this is the the plan, I think, of the Medicare Advantage sellers, that they realize this is a ripe market for them and they're going after them. And I've heard the name of pitch many, many times, have written about it, and they promise the moon to these people. And um, uh, it, it just is not what these people need to know in terms of protecting themselves. And I... I like to talk about they promised them uh, free meals and that sort of thing. What they really need is coverage for those big bills that they may have. And that's really what's left out. Yes, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, the other question is, what do you think about Medicare Advantage in rural communities? And what is the impact on people who live there that are often isolated from healthcare uh, isolated without access to health care because so many hospitals have closed and resources are physically, geographically widely spaced. 
Well, as I said, they are having trouble getting care. And uh, I send them, you know, when I write about this, I always put in the address and phone number of the state ship program to see whether the ship counselors can help them figure out what to buy. But as I say, they are sort of limited because once they've left traditional Medicare, it's going to be really hard in those states to buy a supplement if they're sick. Yeah, I think that's one of the dangers of Medicare Advantage is that people don't understand that it's not simple to go into trans traditional Medicare after that um, because not you like you say you can't buy a supplemental and the that your access may not be there for the pre-existing conditions that you now have. Right, I think they just are are really up a creek. Really, it's very difficult for them. Yes, it's it's a very aggressive marketing that you know does not have patient interests in mind and that is why single-payer medicare for all is so so important but thank you so much um, for your comments and your insight and your knowledge about uh, medicare advantage and how it impacts on communities here um, i'd like to introduce our next speaker who is david lipschitz Lipschultz, excuse me, um, who is the Associate Director for Medicare Advocacy. Now, he is also a Senior Policy Attorney at the Center for Medicare Advocacy, which is a national nonprofit law organization that works to advance access to comprehensive Medicare coverage, health equity, and quality health care for older people and people with disabilities. He currently engages in public policy issues surrounding Medicare and related coverage as they impact Medicare beneficiaries. David, the floor is yours. Looking forward to your comments. Thank you, Dr. Rogers, and thank you, PNHP, for the invitation to be here tonight. Some of what I said has already been covered, but at risk of, of being repetitive, I will go ahead and, and cover it again. I'm first going to talk a little bit about the work that my organization does on behalf of Medicare beneficiaries as a way to set up our experience specifically with Medicare Advantage plans, which will then in turn set up comments about how we view the direct contracting demos, particularly the geographic or geo model. And then I will return to Medicare Advantage in some closing remarks. So my organization, the Center for Medicare Advocacy, is a beneficiary or consumer side organization, a nonpartisan nonprofit law firm in many ways. We're small but mighty and our work ranges from providing direct services to Medicare beneficiaries, to providing technical support to those who assist them, to providing education, sometimes in limited circumstances, litigation, and then the work that I primarily do, policy advocacy. The scope of services that we work on range, run the gamut uh, with respect to the Medicare program, including eligibility and enrollment, addressing barriers to care, pushing for greater oversight of providers, including nursing facilities and home health agencies, exploring how Medicare works with other types of insurance. And we do this in part by supporting or opposing legislation or, or policy proposals, working with policymakers and officials, working in coalition with groups, and working with journalists like Trudy, who we just heard from. Among the critical and recurring subjects that we engage in, both from the standpoint of uh, consumer and broader policy issues is the rise of private Medicare Advantage plans and their impact on both enrollees and the Medicare program in general. In general, 
Due to the nature of our work, people don't often call us when they are happy about their plan or want to brag about how well their care is being coordinated. Instead, it's usually people who are running into problems accessing their care who contact us. What we have found in our experience, backed up by some of the research, including that cited by Trudy, is that many of the problems that beneficiaries in traditional Medicare face with respect to accessing care are exacerbated often in Medicare Advantage plans. For example, services that would be covered in traditional Medicare are either prematurely terminated by Medicare Advantage plans or not covered at all. From a consumer standpoint, there are various trade-offs and things that are attractive as far as enrollment in Medicare Advantage, including uh, the provision of extra benefits that traditional Medicare doesn't cover, uh, the uh, negating the need to pick up a Medigap or a Part D plan. But on the other plan, hand, I think as, as Trudy just pointed out, and unfortunately many of the stories that she has heard are not uncommon. Most MA plans use a restricted network of providers and virtually all Medicare Advantage enrollees are in plans that require some type of prior authorization for some services. And such use of prior authorization often leads to problems as accessing services. As the Congresswoman pointed out, a 2018 uh, Office of Inspector General report found widespread and persistent problems related to denials of care and payment in Medicare Advantage plans. Quality of care in Medicare Advantage plans uh, is perhaps of even greater concern. Research shows that the evidence is decidedly mixed. For example, there are generally higher rates of preventive care and screenings among MA recipients, but as noted in a 2018 New England Journal of Medicine article, somewhat counterintuitively, there seems to be no difference between Medicare, traditional Medicare and Medicare Advantage plans with respect to care coordination. And several studies have flagged concerns about the quality of care received by high need, high cost enrollees on the basis of disenrollment rates and other measures. In other words, credible research shows that those who are more sick tend to disproportionately disenroll from Medicare Advantage plans, including the study that Trudy just outlined. That's from a consumer standpoint. From a policy standpoint, there is a growing imbalance between the Medicare Advantage and the traditional Medicare program in a number of ways, including payment. I think Dr. Weisbart outlined some of the ways that Medicare Advantage plans are maximizing uh, their income stream and how this is costing the Medicare program more subsidized by everyone else via higher Part B premiums. The scope of benefits provided by Medicare Advantage plans uh, are broader than what can be provided in traditional Medicare, and that has been broadened even further by Congress and CMS to include things that are not health-related. Well, at the same time, those benefits have not been made available largely to people in traditional Medicare. Oversight of such plans has been lax, and enrollment is growing at a precipitous rate. Now, roughly 42% of all Medicare enrollees are in Medicare Advantage plans, and it's projected that just in a few years, 50% uh, or more will be in the plan. So in short, Medicare is becoming privatized before our eyes without any real public debate about whether or not this is the direction we want the Medicare program to go in. I went on this tangent about Medicare Advantage because our experiences with and concerns about the Medicare Advantage program directly informed our views of the direct contracting demonstration. Uh, to reiterate what Dr. Weisbart outlined, there are broadly two types of direct contracting uh, demos. 
I'll focus most of my time on the geographic model, the model that is currently suspended. I've been asked to talk briefly about our advocacy surrounding the, the GEO model, so I'm going to quickly walk through a timeline. In past years, CMMI, the Centers for Medicare Medicaid in, uh, Innovation, had put forth a solicitation for public comments and, and drafted documents outlining a proposal for a direct contracting program. But such proposals in the past had been so ambiguous that it was really difficult to provide any meaningful feedback and specific recommendations based upon what was offered. So we were therefore surprised when in December of last year, the geographic or geo model was announced with a rapid ramp up seeking entities to apply early this year, um, slated to begin in January of 2022. When, when we reviewed this announcement, our red flags flew high, our spidey sense tingled, we went on red alert because of the way that it looked like this model in particular was importing a lot of things from Medicare Advantage that gave us pause and gave us concern. These entities were going to set up uh, contracted networks while ostensibly still providing free choice of provider. They were entering into capitated uh, payment arrangements. They were able to employ utilization management tools such as prior authorization. And as Dr. Weisbart noted, they would apply to broad geographic areas targeting large urban areas with no opportunity to opt out. So you would have some urban areas that were virtually all beneficiaries in traditional Medicare would be required to enroll in one of these direct contracting entities through the GEO model, including people duly eligible for Medicare and Medicaid. They would not have been subject to even some of the basic oversight that Medicare Advantage plans were uh, subject to, such as reporting of encounter data or medical loss ratio. And in addition to these problems, there were just a host of, of unanswered questions. So in short, to us, it appeared that the GEO demo appeared to turn more of the federal Medicare program over to private insurers, essentially taking broad groups of people who had chosen not to be in private plans and placing them in one without an opportunity to get out. So uh, the same month that it came out, an independent foundation, the Commonwealth Fund, wrote a blog uh, about this. And while they didn't take a position on the geographic model, they did outline a number of concerns, including pointing out that uh, the model had the effect of enrolling Medicare beneficiaries into a managed care-like plan. It was important having a foundation like this weigh in, even though they didn't pay a, uh, a take a position. It went a long way towards raising alarms that otherwise would have been ignored had they come solely from groups like mine. We also tried to join the public fray. We wrote about uh, our concerns about this in December, began talking with other advocates spanning both Medicare and Medicaid space, many of whom were concerned about this demonstration and through various avenues we had plans to meet with uh, CMMI staff as a larger group and express our concerns. In January of this year, we did lead an organizational sign-on letter to the then acting Secretary of Health and Human Services asking for this model to be suspended. Uh, and in early March of this year, the geographic direct contracting model was in fact suspended, which I think we should all celebrate as a policy victory. Now, we were not the only ones pushing back on this. There are other organizations and individuals worked through various channels. We don't want to oversell the role that we played. We were a voice in a chorus. And uh, note, as Dr. Weisbart pointed out, the CMMI website still notes that the GEO model is currently under review. 
And I submit to you that pressure is needed to ensure that this program does not reach the light of day. There are some existing direct contracting models, the GlowPro models that uh, are in existence now and are going forward have just started. And while we have not taken as deep a dive in, or a look into these models as we did with the GEO model, it appears that some of the most egregious elements of the GEO model are not in these new direct contracting models. That does not mean that they do not uh, warrant scrutiny and vigilance is not required. Uh, and there are a lot of concerns raised by us in part, as Dr. Weisbart uh, outlined, who is drawn to these direct contracting entities. I wanna close my remarks by turning back to Medicare Advantage. And I think what I'm going to say is not novel, not new to this group, doesn't break any ground that you haven't covered before. But if you are concerned about the privatization of the Medicare program, the clear and present danger in this regard is already staring us in the face. And that is of course the Medicare Advantage program. And my takeaway message to you is that if concerted efforts are not taken to address the growing imbalance between Medicare Advantage and traditional Medicare, the Medicare of tomorrow is gonna to look much different than it does today. will really be more of a marketplace of private plans with a backup public plan and less like a national insurance program. Many of you are advocates for uh, a single universal health care program, but many of you are also aware of the barriers standing in the way that are vested in maintaining the status quo. So assuming that we don't have an opportunity to wipe the slate clean and start from scratch, chances are that any expansion in coverage will likely have to be more incremental and we'll have to build off existing models. And if Medicare is going to be that model, without significant improvements, including at very least, writing the imbalance between Medicare Advantage and traditional Medicare, the Medicare program will become more privatized. And if anything, will be a pathway towards Medicare Advantage for all. I'll stop there. Dr. Rogers, see if you have any questions. Special thanks to Kay Tillo for helping to organize this event. Learn more how you can protect, expand, and improved our beloved Medicare program, go to kyhealthcare.org, kyhealthcare.org. You can follow Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare on Facebook and learn how you can help support WFMP LP 106.5, go to forwardradio.org. For Single Payer Radio, I'm Mark McKinley.